The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. So this morning's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, and on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must pull, put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Molly. Uh, Hey, everyone. Uh, Beautiful day, right? Lovely out here. Good to be with you, and uh, before I get into the sermon, I want to take care of a couple of details. First, if you've not received one of these little uh, communion packets and would like one, please raise your hand and somebody will bring one to you. Just uh, keep your hands up and communion distributors, uh, just note where the hands are and bring them around so that everybody has them when it comes time for communion right after the uh, right after this sermon. And before I get into the sermon, uh, it's very important to thank those who have made this moment possible and this morning possible. A lot of work, a lot of sweat equity has gone into just putting up this stage, making sure sound and, and video and everything else is working just right. Uh, those people include uh, Joseph Everly, who, who is the architect of this whole experience, and so we, we can be very thankful for Joe. Uh, also for Josh, Tanner, Lydia Filson, Corey DeRosa, and Jennifer Wingy, whose idea it was to bring us all out here today. And maybe Jennifer has the magic touch. This is the first outdoor service that Jennifer uh, has brought into being. And look at the weather. Uh, maybe we've just had the wrong person calling it all along. So... Uh, anyway, uh, now is the time. Uh, make sure also just, to, again, to keep your hands up if you haven't received your communion packets. Uh, now is the time to get into the text here, uh, which is my joy uh, to, to get to lead us in. So I want to ask you to complete a sentence and just complete it in your mind. You don't need to say it out loud, but complete it in your mind. 
if I could change one thing about myself, I would fill in the blank in your mind. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would that be? So there's a man named Samuel Johnson. He lived in the 18th century. He was an Anglican uh, and also a literary genius, and he kept a diary. Uh, And in that diary, uh, there was a pattern that emerged over the course of decades uh, about his own discouragement uh, concerning sloth. Sloth is listed among the seven deadly sins. Uh, It's another word for laziness. And so I'm going to start the sermon by reading a few short excerpts from his diary. In 1738, he says, O Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I've spent in sloth. Nineteen years later, in 1757, O mighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin by diligent application of the days yet remaining. Two years later, in 1759, enable me, Lord, to shake off idleness and sloth. 1761, I have resolved until I've resolved that I'm afraid to resolve again. 1764, my indolence since my last reception of the sacrament has sunk into grossest sluggishness. My purpose is from this time forward to avoid idleness and to rise early. 1764, five months later, he resolves to rise not later than six if I can. 1765, I purpose to rise at eight, because though I shall not rise early, it will be much earlier than I now rise, for I often lie in bed until two. 1769, I'm not yet in a state to form any resolutions. I purpose and hope to rise early in the morning by eight and by degrees at six. 1775, when I look back upon resolution of improvement and amendments, which have year after year been made and broken, Why do I yet try to resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. And he resolves again to rise at eight. And then in 1781, three years before his death, I will not despair. Help me, help me, oh my God. And then he resolves to rise at eight or sooner to avoid idleness. I'm as free as a bird now. And this bird will never change. This bird you cannot change. Lord knows I can't change. Lord, help me. I can't change. Leonard Skinner got it. Samuel Johnson got it. So did the Apostle Paul. An earlier letter, his letter to the Romans, he writes this about himself. Another one of the seven deadly sins had plagued the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 7, what I want to do, I do not do. The law says, do not envy, and yet I can't stop envying. What I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he, he gives us Romans 8 to follow Romans 7, where he talks about the righteousness of Christ, which is spoken of elsewhere Uh, as the robe of Christ's righteousness that God puts on his people. A covering 
that reminds us that on our best days and on our worst days, there is now no condemnation for those who are in, who are clothed with, who are covered by the robe of Christ's righteousness. So a few years later, Paul writes Colossians, which is the letter we're looking at today. And here in chapter 3, he tells us that change is possible. And we have some agency in it. But isn't it wonderful, before we get into the whole how to change teaching from Scripture, isn't it wonderful that people that we look up to, people like Samuel Johnson, people like the Apostle Paul, and and all of those other sinner saints who gave us the Scripture, people that we look up to have seasons and moments and years where they struggle looking down on themselves. And the answer that that lifts them out of that is the same answer that lifts us out of it. Jesus Christ, the hope of his righteousness, the robe of his righteousness. And so so I'm going to talk about two things today. The shortest point will be first, just to warn you so you can keep your clocks. And that point is where desire for change comes from. Why do we want to be different? Why, even though for 40 years I've resolved on January 1st to lose weight this year, and, and most of those years I've weighed more on the last day of December than I did on the first day of January, why do I keep making that resolution? Why do I keep desiring change? Where does the desire come from? And then secondly, what can we do about it? What is our agency in, in what the Bible calls God's work to will and to act according to his pleasure? So, so first, where does the desire for change come from? It comes from our design, and it comes from our desire. Our design, we're, we're told here in verse 10 that we're made in the image of our creator. We can't help but want to be like the one that we have been created to be like. It's in us. It's in our hardwiring. Whether, whether, whether we believe in Jesus Christ or not, whether we're religious or not, we have this most of us, unless we're you know, sociopathic or psychopathic, we have this desire all the time to be different, better, further along than we feel that we are and that we know that we are because as human beings, we're created in the image of God. We're made to be and to become like him and we can't escape that, which then gives us this desire that Paul talks about again back in Romans 7. He says, I want to do good. He says, I desire what is right. It says, I delight in the law of God. I just struggle to follow it. I just struggle and suffer to keep it. And yet, I can't stop delighting and wanting and desiring the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, the Golden Rule, the things that Paul says we're to clothe ourselves with in texts like this. And why is that? There's a special word here for Christians. That give, that give us the why. Verses 1 and 3, you died. The old you died, and now you've been raised with Christ. Then verse 4, Christ is now your life. And then verse 11, Christ lives inside of you. And so, so there's even this great, greater, more amplified desire when you have Christ in you, when you have the Holy Spirit in you, when you have the Father's words being spoken over you right here, as it says in verse 12, that you're chosen, that you're holy and beloved in his sight, you want even more to change. 
Are you sometimes culpable of being your own worst critic? Is there an inner perfectionist in you that keeps nagging? I want to suggest from the scriptures that that is not because there is something wrong with you, your desire to be perfect. It's because there's something right with you, that you long for more than what you've ever experienced and, and who you've ever experienced yourself to be. That longing is not because there's something wrong with you. It's because there's something right with you. Even in the, the sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where where you know, we would reverse the, the, the landscape and, and, and Jesus would be up there speaking and we would be down here all at his feet listening. And one of the things that he said in that sermon was, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And then the rest of his life was a testimony to how we can't do that very thing yet. Yeah, I think Jesus' command that we be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, if, if for nothing else is a shout-out and an affirmation to the perfectionists among us, particularly the, the inner perfectionist that recognizes with all of our hearts that to err is actually not human. To err is erroneous. To err is to be less than what and who we've been made to be. In Romans 8, Paul talks about the groan of creation where he unpacks in, in a beautifully tragic way how every one of us is frustrated. Every one of us groans over every part of ourselves, our spiritual lives, our relationships, our work, our world, as we recognize that all of it, for now, is unfinished, damaged, and contaminated. And the moment we start accepting that, our unfinished, damaged, contaminated existence is the moment we, we disconnect our hearts from the one who is calling us to live in him and with him and, and to set our vision toward where we will one day be at the right hand of God with Christ in Christ. So there's this anticipation that Romans 8 goes on to talk about, the glorious freedom that's coming. And it's going to start with those who are the children of God and then the rest of creation, the world, the earth, the galaxies, it's all going to follow and it's all going to become perfect and glorious. You haven't even started beginning to live the abundant life, at least to the degree that Jesus envisions it for all of us. And in a sense, as C.S. Lewis says, we're still living in the prologues and chapter one and only begins when Jesus returns, which I'll get to in a moment. But glory, this word that, 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 that Colossians 3, 4 directs us to, where it says, when Christ appears, when he comes again, you will also appear with him in glory. Glory is a place where he's talking about the new heaven and the new earth. The second to last chapter of the Bible says that that will be a place where there'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. So it's a place, but it's also a condition. It will be a condition of perfection leading to more perfection. Do you know the scriptures say that when Christ returns, we will be made like Christ. Why? Because we will see him. We will see him 
as he is, and we will not be able to help ourselves anymore but to become like him because we will see him with clarity, even though now we see as in a mirror dimly. But then we'll see him face to face. And he will make everything new, everything better, everything stronger, everything more life-giving, everything more healthy every day, more so than the day before for infinite days. What is this all telling us? We are made for more. We are made for more. Why do you think that, that, that so many athletes, after they win a Super Bowl, after they win a, a tennis tournament or a, a national championship, athletes, coaches, the next day, they're wrestling with this discontent. Why did Tom Brady say to to the interviewer, I, I've achieved all of my dreams in his 20s. I've won all these Super Bowls, set all these records, married to, to the world's top supermodel. Our combined income is $87 million a year, and I'm still not content. I still feel like I'm made for more. Why is that? The answer's right here. Because you're made for more. You know, C.S. Lewis put it this way in Mere Christianity. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. We are homesick. We're homesick. We want Eden before the fall. We want the new heaven and the new earth. We're, 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 it's like we're living in between those bookends of glory and we're going to be frustrated until that's our reality completely. So what can we do about it now? The Bible says, make progress. Start living as if you're already where Christ is, at the right hand of God, with recognition that Jesus will not bring you to complete completion until he returns. But live in promise and live to grow. Live to make progress. You know, hang on as Samuel Johnson did. I mean, we can look at Samuel Johnson's diary and say, oh, how pathetic. How, how little self-control the guy must have, but how many of us have been wrestling with the same thing about us for 50-something years? I think every hand will go up. You know, Luther put it this way. He, he used the Latin phrase, semper reformanda, which means we're always reforming. We're always aspiring to the perfection that the Sermon on the Mount calls us to while being temporary imperfectionists at the same time, recognizing that grace, the robe of Christ, the truth and beauty of Christ, the record of Christ clothes us, robes us, covers us. Okay, so in the meantime, three things to do uh, before we go to the food trucks. First, shed the old skin. Verses 5, 8, and 9 talk about a, 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 an assassination attempt that we are supposed to make, not on another person or another people group, but an assassination attempt on everything in us that is not congruent with life in Christ. Put to death, it says, things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, coveting, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscenities, lying. This is violent language telling us, not just permitting us, but commanding us to, to do violence, to wage 
war on the things in us that will not go away without a fight, where we co-labor along with the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, along with the power of the gospel, which is the dynamite of God, the power of God for salvation, the power of God for change, the power of God for transformation, to partner with, with those resources that Christ has put inside of us to not only dream for different and better, but to, to make progress, even if only in inches. The biggest barrier to sanctification, and sanctification is a theologian's word, it's a seminary professor's word that basically means improving, especially improving in our character, becoming more like Christ, more filled with things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The biggest barrier to that is the belief that the biggest problems in the world are outside of us rather than inside of us. The biggest problem in the world is that person. Who is that person for you? Or the biggest problem in the world is those people. Who are those people for you? Or the biggest problem in the world is these circumstances and conditions. What what are those circumstances and conditions that are serving as excuses to ignore that which is in yourself, or the clothing that you've been willing to wear. Another wonderful book by C.S. Lewis is called Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's one of the seven books in the Chronicles of Narnia. And one of the sentences uh, introduces a man named Eustace, a young man, a boy named Eustace. And it says this, There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. So at the start, when Eustace is introduced, we see him as an arrogant, whiny, self-centered boy who's disrespectful to the grown-ups in his life, and nobody wants to play with him. And it says that he has greedy, quote, dragonish thoughts in his heart, end quote. Greedy, dragonous thoughts. And, and he eventually becomes a dragon because those greedy, dragonous thoughts turn him into one. And what happens is that he starts to experience this terrible pain because he has a boy's bracelet, a, a lot like the watch I'm wearing. It's made of metal so it won't expand. And, and what was made to fit a boy's wrist did not fit a dragon's leg. And so what it, what it would do is it would cut into to the dragon's leg, it would infect him, and he lived in constant pain because of, of the boy's bracelet that is not fit for a dragon's leg. And, and like many of us are who've been resisting God for so many years, we become open to him when we, discover, when we experience a pain that, that we feel is no longer bear, bearable. And the, what, what Christ does is he comes to us with claws. He's a lion. And that's what the lion figure in Narnia does with Eustace when he's a dragon. He comes to him with claws and he, he claws that dragon skin so as to peel it off. And, and it, it becomes more painful, not less, the removal of the dragon skin because of the claws. 
But Aslan is not done with Eustace after the dragon skin is peeled off. He then sends him to a bath that Aslan has prepared for him. And he's cleansed. And, 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 and a result of, of these excruciating claws that took away things that were precious to him, that turned him into a dragon, his arrogance, his brattiness, his whininess, his self-centeredness and disrespect toward others, felt like the life he was supposed to live. But when, when, when Aslan's claws removed all of that, a new sort of skin started to cover him. You could call it the skin of a fruit. He became more wise, became helpful, he became kind, brave, respectful to his elders, and so on. But it doesn't come without a fight. And then put on the new skin. After shedding the old skin, put on the new. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with each other. So it's so important when you're reading scriptures like this, not to speed read the first few words, but to go very, very slow. The emphasis here is not on behaviors and attitudes. The emphasis is on belonging. If you want to change, you have to belong. Let's read these words slow. Put on then, pause, hold on. I'm going to tell you how before I tell you what to put on. Put on then, pause, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, unpause, put on compassion, passionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and so on. God's chosen ones regarded by him as holy and beloved. How is that possible when he's telling us to change, when he's telling us to shed the dragon's skin and, and yet he's simultaneously calling us holy and beloved and chosen? How, how could those things coexist? Because of the robe, because of the covering of the righteousness of Christ. What does that mean? It simply means that Jesus did not merely die to pay the debt for all that is wrong in you and me for our sin, even though that's the most wonderful thing anybody could ever do for anyone else. And, and Jesus, the only one who had the power and ability to do that for anyone, did it for everyone who would call on him and trust in him. What a glorious thing that Christ has forgiven us of our sins. But there is more. He also lived a flawless, impeccable beautiful, life-giving, full of love, full of the fruit of the Spirit, life from the moment he was born until the moment he died without ever committing a single sin. And he has credited us with that life. And he has clothed us and covered us with that life. What this means for the Colossians, what this means for us when we're frustrated with ourselves and with our world and with life as we understand it and with our desire to change what this means is, in our very worst moment, God loves us just as much as he loved Jesus when Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He loves us that much. Because when he looks at us, he sees the robe, he sees the clothing, he sees the covering. You're blameless in his sight, as well as being forgiven in his sight. 
the dragon cannot become wise, helpful, kind, or brave directly. It's not something that you try and succeed at. Character growth, character improvement, character virtue, it's not something that you try and something that you improve at. Holiness is a byproduct. It's not a product. It's a byproduct. It's not even your primary goal. Your primary goal is Christ, and holiness flows out of that. Newness of life flows out of that. Aim at Christ, and you get virtue thrown in. Aim at virtue, and you get neither. To steal a literary device from C.S. Lewis. You all tell I read a lot of C.S. Lewis in preparation for this. What does it say? It does not say set your wills on a new resolution. It says set your minds on things above. You have been raised with Christ, so seek him who is seated at God's right hand, and then you'll change. And then you'll become different. Then your life will start to resemble the clothing that Christ has already put on you. You know, like, like let's just say like, like there's, a, there's a dad who has this you know, fancy, you know, Faraday shirt, you know, this $300, you know, you know, plaid shirt and, and the dad, you know, his, his gut is too big to fit in it because it's a slim fit. And so he saves it for his little boy when his little boy grows up, right? But he gives the shirt to his little boy and it's an XL and, and the boy wears a size small, but it's still his shirt. And, and all for, for the rest of his life, up until a certain age, that boy will be growing into that shirt that the father has already clothed him with at a young age. Holiness works like that. Practical, functional righteousness works like that. We grow into something that Christ has already put on us, namely himself. Before, Colossians tells us to put on compassion and all these other wonderful virtues, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, bearing with each other. Before, it says put those things on, it says put on the benediction, put on the blessing that Christ has spoken over you, that you are God's chosen one before you do anything well. Before you do any improving, you are God's chosen. Before you do any improving, you are God's beloved, regarded as holy. When you're loved like this, when you're affirmed like this, does it not make you want to change? Does it not make you want to be different? So um, Samantha Fisher, there you are. She was up here uh, a moment ago leading us in confession. She and I were having a conversation a while ago about a person that we both hold dear. And what this person did, they, they were a person who lived in, uh, in Nashville for about 10 years to, to complete an assignment that they were given to complete from Nashville. And then they, they moved back to, to, to their home, uh, which is in another city. And what they did before they moved back in their home was they invited their friends and the people they worked with uh, into to a couple of different settings. And it was their own farewell party. And, and you think, who throws their own farewell party? Well, this kind of person throws their own farewell party. It was a different kind of farewell party because typically at farewell parties, everybody in the room talks about the people who are leaving and blesses them, and, and that's incredibly appropriate and wonderful. But this man and his wife threw a farewell party where they bought 
nice dinner for everybody. It's about 100 people. And then they went through the room and, and, and pointed out the, the meaningfulness that each individual person in the room had in their lives. And they didn't allow anybody to say, so you, you can bless us some other time, but, but we are here at our going away party to bless all of our friends. And I remember telling Samantha, I said, I don't, I don't know about you, but getting to be in that room and watching that and being a recipient of, of an unexpected blessing, it made me want to be a better human being. It just made me want to be better. And then my mind and my heart and my thoughts turned to Christ himself. Isn't this what he does for us every single day? He pronounces an, an unexpected blessing over us before we do anything good, which is the very thing that makes us want to be good. Aim at Christ and you will get virtue. You can't directly seek virtue. You can't directly seek holiness, godliness, the fruit of the Spirit. It's byproduct of seeking Christ and of knowing Christ. So lastly, become the beloved community. That's a phrase that borrowing from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who defined what he called beloved community as this, a community in which everyone is cared for, absent of poverty, absent of hunger, absent of hate. And this text affirms that here, here meaning life in Christ, in the community of Christ, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. So, so when you said Scythian in the Colossian community, you thought Scythian, ah, derogatory word, human scum, vermin, monsters. But what, what Paul is doing here is, is, is he's giving these people a different vision even for a Scythian. A vision for a community that would embrace even a Scythian in meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord, there it is again, as the Lord has forgiven you. How you know, how do you know you're no longer a dragon? Part of how you know that the dragon skin has been peeled off of you is that you find yourself treating other people like dragons less and less and less. Where you get a vision for, for even the, the Eustace dragons in your life of, of, of what he could be like if, if Aslan got a hold of him and took off the dragon skin and sent him into a bath and, and made him someone new. You know, when I was a young Christian, I, I, I got converted to Christ in my early, early, early 20s. And I was very, very zealous. I was very Eustace-like. I was very sure of myself, very arrogant even about my newfound faith. And in the particular church that we were part of, an older man confessed to being depressed. And being the newfound, on-fire deeply connected with Christ, believer that I was, I wrote him an anonymous letter telling him why he shouldn't be depressed and quoting Psalms like, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. This young, clueless, early 20s person lecturing in an anonymous letter 
a 55-year-old person who's been walking with Christ for 40 years going through the valley. And so what happened next? His wife knew exactly who wrote the letter. She spent enough time with me to know it had to have been me. And so she reaches out to me and she told me the truth about life. That yes, we are to aim for perfection by the power of Christ while also being imperfectionists with respect to ourselves and especially with respect to the people God's put us in community with, knowing that he who began a good work in each of us will complete it someday. But, as, but, but that, that, that means that it is not, that work has not been completed yet. And so we live with one another and we, we come alongside one another in grace, especially in our weakest moments. So two years later, I became depressed. And what happened? I got a phone call from this couple. This couple was the first couple that, finding out about my depression, they called me, welcomed me to their table, and it was him who prayed for me, who encouraged me, who embraced me, not as a dragon or as a Scythian, but as one of God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, it made me want to be a better man. That's what a table will do. A table that you don't expect to be welcomed at because you have so offended and assaulted the people who set that table that, that, that you would be utterly shocked if they not only welcomed you to it, but blessed you as you gathered with them around it. And that is precisely what Jesus Christ does when he invites us to his table. The Lord's Supper, friends, there is no more gracious, wonderful, life-giving table than this one. And so it's my privilege to say to all the dragons and Scythians and bratty little boys and also the, the transformed ones, the ones who've had the skin pulled off and who've been given a bath through the waters of baptism, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I'd invite you to take out your communion packets, daughters and sons of the king, and carefully peel off the top layer to get to the bread first. Daughters and sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus alone, this is the body of Christ given for you. Take and eat, all of you. And now I'd invite you to very carefully peel off the cup portion and remind you, daughters and sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus, that this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Do this in remembrance of him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you do not call us first to behaviors and attitudes, even though behaviors and attitudes will certainly change once we've experienced the belonging of knowing that we are God's, his chosen ones, his holy beloved ones, covered and clothed by the robe of Christ's righteousness. We thank you 
for the forgiveness achieved for us by Christ and for the blamelessness and righteousness and beauty achieved for us by Christ so that now we could be welcomed joyfully to your table. Hear us now as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.